Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 45. The other thing I would say to those who are interested in internships in, um, I think it's really important that you intern in a farm where you really respect their farming practices on one hand, but then the other important thing is that it's actually a, a financially sustainable operation. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardage. On today's show, we have Jesse Strait of Wiffle Tree Farm. We discuss his multiple livestock species and how he gets start how he got started. Also, we take a deep dive into the internships available on his farm. However, before we talk to Jesse, we are introducing a new segment to our podcast. It's 10 seconds about my farm. It's just a quick update to what's happening here and to help you get to know me as well as my farm. Right now, we have the bulls with the cows. and We turn the bulls out in early July using South Pole bulls. And then I put another bull with them uh, just a week or two ago, just because I don't, I didn't get a breeding soundness eval done on the bulls. So just to be be sure and add some security, I turned another bull out. They will stay out with the cows for the month of August, and then I will pull them away from the herd. We have been hot and dry here. As a lot of people in this area of United States have been. We did get 3.7 inches of rain last weekend. So that was a blessing. And we're thankful for that. And things are starting to green up some. But the heat built right in. Right back in. So we'll see how long it lasts. Also I want to do a quick update about my wife's health journey. She is doing good and recently completed radiation and and a surgery, and she's doing good. She's getting ready for the new school year, and we'll be back in the classroom teaching soon. We appreciate all the prayers and well wishes, and those that reached out to us, thank you. We appreciate it. Do you like the Grazing Grass podcast? There are a few ways to support it. First, like our content on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'll like our content, that helps, as well as sharing it. So share it to your story, share it to your reel. The more we get the word out, the better we can grow our community. Secondly, you can support the podcast by visiting the Grazing Grass website and clicking on the community link. Join our community and engage with others. It's a forum to that it's a forum. Let's try that again. It's a forum set up for grazing grass related discussion. Also, if you're there, you can click on the support button to subscribe to the podcast. And that just helps us in a future episode. We'll talk more about that. We do want to say thank you to Jared. For becoming a supporter. We appreciate it. And lastly, we have a link on the Grazing Grass website for merch. 
So if you click on the merch, it'll take you to an Etsy store we have set up with a few t-shirts. But enough of that, let's talk to Jesse. Jesse, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited to have you on today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, thank you, Cal, for having me. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so my wife and I did not grow up as farmers, um, and I was a pretty typical uh, suburban kid, went off to college and um, studied religious studies and pre-med sciences, and clearly had no idea that I was going to become a farmer at one day. Um, Those are not two degrees I hear mentioned with farming. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know. It doesn't doesn't kind of connect the dots in a normal way. Um, but, you know, actually I do see um, a lot of connection with sort of my theological studies and how those undergird some of our farming practices and principles. But it is more on the, um, on the uh, not practical, but theoretical level. But in any case, yeah, so I just got interested after college. I read um, some books that made me very interested. And I probably couldn't have articulated it clearly then. But now in retrospect, I can see how it made sense for me to go in this direction based on my interest and history and priorities. And so uh, long story short, my wife and I, you know, uh, read a bunch of books, visited a bunch of farmers, began little enterprises here and there. Um, and that brings us to 2009 when we moved back to my hometown of Warrington, Virginia, which is about 50 miles southwest of D.C. and uh, began our, our farm, which at that point meant getting 50 baby chicks in the mail and learning how to raise chickens on pasture. Um, and then we over you know, the last 12 to 13 years have just built up our knowledge, um, our production, our customer base, our team. Uh, to the point where we are now, and we've we've done meat chickens, laying hens, turkeys, pork, and beef, um, and everything is raised on fresh pasture. We don't use any antibiotics, no chemical applications, um, non-GMO feed, um, and our beef is 100% grass-fed. Um, we process all of our own uh, turkey and meat chickens, and our pork and beef we take to the slaughterhouse. Yeah, and you know, so at this point. Uh, we're doing about um, 14,000 meat chickens a year. We keep about two to 3,000 laying hens at any given point. We'll do about 1,300 turkeys for Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, we have a herd of um, around 100 to 150 beef cattle. And in the last several years, we've actually outsourced our pork because of land constraints. Um, so we have two farmer friends that are raising our pork for us, but we do about 230 pigs a year. We'd like to bring the pork back in-house once we can kind of uh, solve the, the land constraint issue, but that's, that's where we are right now. And um, in terms of our sales outlets and what it looks like on the business side, uh, we have a farm store, which is about 25% of our sales. We do what we call neighborhood deliveries um, from... Maryland, D.C., Northern Virginia, to Central Virginia, um, and we also sell wholesale. Um, our wholesale is about 40% of our sales, and that would be to restaurants, butchers, small independent grocers, um, and even to other farms um, that don't do meat that we are offering. You know, say a vegetable farmer is offering a meat CSA um, uh, with our meat kind of thing. And um, yeah, and then in terms of our team, um, it's myself, of course. Um, 
my, we have uh, eight children that range from the age of 14 to two. So my wife is very busy at home with homeschooling and, um, and taking care of all of them. So she's not as involved in the farm as she once was. But then there's um, generally about four full-time employees, two or three part-time employees. And then we have a really excellent poultry processing crew of about uh, 10 to 15 people that help us every Wednesday from April through November. So that's, uh, and then also I should mention my, uh, my mom and a friend of hers, I clean and package eggs for us a couple days a week. Um, so that's, that's a picture of kind of what the team looks like. Oh, and then of course, um, our interns, we have one to four interns at any given point throughout the year. Um, those are four month long internships that go the, uh, there's three sessions that go the whole year. So, um, that's, that's what that looks like there. Yeah. Does that, does that answer the question there, Cal? Oh, that does. That gives us a nice overview of what you've got going on on your farm, and it sounds like you've got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, it is. So before we talk a little bit deeper about all that stuff, I think you said in 2009 you bought your, you ordered the baby chicks and started pasture poultry. That's right. For the first time? Yeah. So, so let's just talk about getting started on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I had been in conversation with Joel Saladin at Polyface Farm. Um, he had been sort of one of my mentors, primary mentor. And my wife and I were married and had our first child at the time as a baby. Um, and so the internship at Polyface wasn't really um, possible for us in terms of family housing. So I, you know, was like, all right, well, I, I can't do that internship, but I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, just going off of books and taking day trips to Polyface and talking on the phone with Joel and those kinds of things. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's how we got started. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, we had, uh, you know, uh, a number of books, especially Joel Saladin's books on uh, poultry farming. Um, and we made lots of mistakes and, um, and we got lots of help from, from generous people like Joel. Um, and it was slow going because we were so green. I mean, I was, I didn't know how to farm and I didn't know how to run a business. And so I was learning both the things at the same time when it was very, it was very intense. Um, and it was definitely, you know, much slower going than if I'd had, you know, that background experience, um, as an intern or growing up with it, but I had to sort of learn, uh, the hard way. And, um, we definitely had some significant bumps, but you know we made it through, and I'm grateful to to having made it through and to having all the help we did. Is Polyface Farm fairly close to you? It's about two and a half hours from us. Oh yeah, I I thought they were in Virginia. I just wasn't quite sure how close to you. That mm -hmm. was a yeah. tremendous resource for you. Yes, definitely. I I can't um, say enough how much. Uh, how generous Joel and Daniel Saladin have been in terms of, um, yeah, just opening up their farm and, uh, you know, inviting me to, to learn from them. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing, either running a business or farming. And uh, the only way I had a chance was to have a mentor and a model to follow. And that's, that's the only way that someone like me would have a chance at that. And just right there, you touched on a great point that so many people bring up is having that mentor or someone that you can reach out to for your questions and 
mm-hmm. get a hold of, visit their farm, and see what's going on. Yeah, I think it's critical. How did that first year turn out with your chickens? Yeah, so we got a, a batch of 50 chicks. Um, I had processed chickens with uh, polyface, and then we processed our own, and it was a total mess. I mean, we were just, you know, those 50 chickens with a whole slew of friends took us all day um, because we just didn't know what we were doing. But then the next the next week, I went back to polyface and like, all right, now I have all my questions. <laughs> now that I've saw, you know, how where all <laughs> yes. my, my, my hangups were. So, yeah, and then it was, you know, back and forth between processing our own, going to polyface, processing with them, refining the process, coming back to the point where I just became much more confident. In that first year, we only raised and slaughtered, um, it was probably 250 chickens, um, but that was a start. And the next year, I don't know, I think we did 1,200 chickens or something like that. Um, so, and then we added laying hens and then we added turkeys and pretty much each year we added, um, you know, a new enterprise between laying hens, turkeys, pigs, and beef cattle, as we got somewhat confident in the one we had been doing before, and we had a customer base that you know we could sell to. So, are you still using the uh, Salatin style chicken tractor to grow them in? We're not. We um, have moved to the more the prairie schooner or mobile range coop um, kind of structure that's pulled by a tractor. Oh, okay. Um, so th- the ones we have are the Prairie Schooner uh, from Featherman. Those are 20 foot by 40 foot uh, that we pull with our um, you know, medium-sized 60 horsepower tractor. Um, and we've had those for a couple of years now. Um, I am actually just in the process of selling off of all our old Saladin shelters and, um, and sort of smaller A-frame shelters that we hand-pulled, um, which served me well. I mean, I, we raised tens of thousands of chickens in those. Um, and uh, there, there's there's many merits to that. I, I think I'm happy I went with this larger uh, schooner, but it's not a slam dunk. There's definitely pros and cons. Um, and um, I definitely would recommend for someone starting out um, to really think hard about using um, a hand-pulled, um, inexpensive, um, shelter of some kind, whether it's the Saladin model or it's, you know, more of an A-frame model, you know, lots of good permutations, but um, that was, I think, a wise way to get going. As someone who hasn't done meat chickens, I agree with you because I think starting off with that smaller size pen gets you in closer contact with your birds and really uh, educates you on raising them, as opposed to your bigger building you run into some issues there, you could lose a lot of birds quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just too, it's, it's a lot to do with just infrastructure and capital. You, know, you don't have to own a tractor to pull a, a salad True. shelter. Um, and, you know, those schooners cost, you know, 10,000 bucks a pop. And a salad shelter you can build for, you know, 300 bucks each. So, you know, you can you can build six salad shelters for under $2,000. Um, and you know you'd have to you're going to spend ten thousand dollars on the same kind of square footage on a schooner, um, so you know and there's just other things where those salad shelters they can they can get transported from one farm to the next very easily, um, whereas the schooners you know they're twenty feet wide Hell they yes. can't go on the road. That's a good um, so there's there's lots of things to consider, but you know like I said I think it's a great way to start. I'm glad I started that way, um, but I am glad that we've moved to the schooners. I think. Um, 
there's some advantages there we can get into if you want to but um but yeah they've been good let's let's talk about some of those advantages before we move into what else you added to your farm after your meat sure so yeah i think for us um, our summers are pretty hot and humid and so those salad shelters being two feet tall the chickens are, are, are really hot in there and we would have to spend a lot of effort and time spraying the shelters off, spraying the birds off in the middle of the summer so they wouldn't die of heat stroke, especially the older birds that are closer to slaughter age. Um, so that was a real time suck and liability. The schooners are much better ventilated um, so that the birds stay uh, more comfortable and require less labor for us to keep them happy and alive. Um, and then um, just in terms of sort of sustainable on the body, pulling, you know, 30 or 40 salad and shelters every morning, um, you know, I really enjoyed that kind of physical work. But, you know, if you're a 100 pound female, um, you know, that's just a whole different thing that to do so many day after day, you know, you could really run into some health issues. And then, um, yeah, with the the Saladin shelters with the, the nature of the feed, we'd have to come back in the afternoon to top off feed with the older birds. With the schooners, we're using those oh, hanging yeah. uh, cool feeders where we can basically put in enough feed where we don't have to come back in the afternoon. So it really cuts down on our trips and our labor. Um, and then also the other advantage of the schooners is when it comes time to putting the chicks in there from the brooder, it's more efficient because you're not going to say, um, you know, uh, seven or eight salad shelters and putting in 80 birds in each you're just putting them all in this one big schooner so it's kind of a faster uh, move there and then likewise when you go to slaughter uh, creating up birds is very efficient where what we'll do is we'll in the dark at dark whether it's late at night or in the early morning we'll pull the schooner off the birds when they're sleeping and there'll be you know 500 birds just out in the open asleep that are just you know very easy to put in crates and, and create very quickly um, the salad shelter uh, can be sometimes annoying trying to get in there and get birds out of there and put them in crates. Um, so there's some um, ease and efficiency in putting birds in and taking birds out of the schooner. And um, and then the other thing too is that while our square footage per birds is about the same in a schooner versus a saladin shelter, every bird effectively has 800 square feet as opposed to 120 square foot feet in a saladin shelter. So that means that a given bird, even though they have the same proportion amount of square feet, they have a lot more to play in. So they can, you know, they have a lot more room, a lot more room to, to go around and, and, uh, and uh, scratch and peck and, and harvest. Um, so uh, I think that sort of beds are, makes a better quality of life for the bird in that way as well. Which all makes sense. Some of the downsides would be the things I mentioned where it's like, you know, the saddle and shelter is much less expensive. Um, the, uh, you know, it's kind of like the farm where you build it is the farm that's going to stay, you know, so say you're leasing land and you, you can easily bring saddle and shelters to lease land and then take them to another land. You know, the, the schooner, you'd essentially have to like most likely uh, take it apart and put it back together to move it, which is not impossible, but it's not a fun prospect. Um, and um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, say you get a wind event and you get a couple of shelters that get blown around, you know, you're not looking at a catastrophic loss. But if you were to have, you know, your schooner fleet all flipped in a wind event, 
you know, you might be looking at, you know, well, with labor of constructing them and shipping and materials, you might be looking at, you know, $75,000 in loss. Um, and so that's a lot more uh, stressful and more to think about, you know, in terms of damage to infrastructure. Um, so um, those would be some of the downsides. Yeah, thank you for giving us a little bit more detail comparing the two shelter types. Yep. Uh, before we move on to move away from chickens, move away from meat chickens, because we're going to talk about layers in just a minute. Yeah. That first year on raising your first chickens, the the thing that scares some beginners or and some veterans is marketing. How yeah. was marketing for you? Yeah, um, I think um, marketing is probably one of those things that's one of my strengths. Um, I, there's plenty of things that you know my team would be able to tell you are not my strengths um, and my wife would be able to tell you um, <laughs> but I know that that's probably not it's probably one of my relative strengths just because it's the thing that you know when I'm when there's a list of things that I'm procrastinating on it's not marketing you know it's it's some other tasks that I go oh, I don't want to do that but I'll go and like call a chef or you know um, interact with a customer um, so just in terms of like my personality and inclination, I think that's just work that I enjoy doing. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, that, that, that was not, um, that was not, I guess, in some degree swimming upstream for me. That, that came more naturally. I, I think of a story that kind of displays that, you know, we'd, we probably had gotten, you know, our second batch of chickens and I'm on the house phone uh, calling a chef and my wife's uh, in the room with me. I mean, I'm calling the chef and I say, hey, you know, chef, um, you know, I'm a pasture poultry farmer and, blah, you know, would you like to try some of my chicken? And I can hear my wife in the background being like, you're not a pasture poultry farmer. You got a 50 chickens in the yard. What are you talking about? Um, so, you know, I uh, <laughs> she called my bluff, you know, that uh, but that kind of goes to show that I was willing to. Uh, to uh, take on that identity maybe before I even earned it. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, so that's that's something that I basically just like um, would pursue any opportunity that I saw. So whether it was with a chef that I thought might be interested in our food or whether, you know, I didn't, I wasn't bashful to approach friends and family and connections and tell them about what we're doing and why I think it's good and why, you know, they should buy their food from us. Um, and if, if there was a group that was interested in, in, in hearing a presentation about this model of farming, I was happy to do that. Um, and I like to write. So in terms of things like email and social media, um, that's something that I enjoy doing. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, I think that's a critical part of how to make this work is that you, know, you have to sell the food you raise. Um, and you have to um, connect with customers and and help them to understand the value of what you're producing. Um, and it's something that I believe in. You know, I believe that what we're doing is good for the land, is good for the people that eat our food, is good for the animals, is good for us farmers, it's good for my hometown. I believe all that sincerely. And so it's, um, you know, it's easy for me to to, if anyone's interested in listening, it's easy for me to tell them why I think they should buy our food. Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's, 
kind of how it's been. And and that is so true. You got to believe in it and have that passion there for you to share with others. Also, you mentioned there as you look at your list of to-do items, that's that's what you didn't procrastinate on. I um I mentioned it a few times. I like the Bigger Pockets uh, podcast, real estate podcast. And one yeah. thing they talk about quite often is those things you procrastinate on. Those are the things you hire someone else to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that's true. And Jesse, you added so you started with your meat chickens, and then shortly thereafter, a year or two later, you added layers. Yeah. Yeah, just the, we, we essentially sort of, you know, we did meat chickens in 2009, we added layers in 2010, pigs in 2011, turkeys in 2012, beef cattle in 2013, well, pretty much along that line. So tell us a little bit about how your layers are set up. Okay, yeah, so there, we have two ways of doing layers right now, and it's not how we've always done them. Um, but we have layers in sort of what people might recognize as a classic eggmobile on, say, a hay wagon frame, a mobile house that has oh, yeah. provide shelter and nest boxes uh, for the hens, um, and then uh, uh, and then we have um, we're also doing layers now in schooners. So rather than on a hay wagon frame, it's in you know one of those twenty foot by forty foot um, essentially mobile greenhouses. Um, that it has skids and slides across the top of the pasture. Um, so we're now doing both of those and we've been doing them in the eggmobiles um, for, you know, forever. Um, and this last year we just raised a, a flock in a schooner and I was really happy with how that went. Um, and that's something I'd seen that uh, Seven Sons Farm does um, in schooners. And it's, I wanted to, I, I saw some advantages there and I, I like to try that out and I've been happy with it. So we'll probably will move more and more to that direction. Um, and then that those either eggmobiles or schooners is in combination with the um, electrified poultry netting um, so that the birds can day range on. We generally are making paddocks that are about uh, three quarters of an acre. Um, and uh, we're moving those at least once a week um, to fresh pasture. Um, yeah, so, um, but in the schooner, it looks similar to inside the eggmobile and then that's where we will have hanging feeders, um, we'll have automatic waterers, and we'll have the nest boxes. Um, and we've, we've gone to using the um, rollaway nest boxes more recently in the schooner, and we've been happy with that. Um, whereas we've used the classic um, sort of just straw in a nest box um, kind of setup with the eggmobiles. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what the setup looks like. Again, we pull those eggmobiles um, with in schooner with our 60 horsepower tractor um, we also do something a little bit unique among um, pasture poultry farmers of our scale with the layers where we ration their feed so we don't give them unlimited access to feed um, and we've been in conversation with uh, Jeff Maddox at Fertrail um, about um, our feed formula and the rationing um, and the idea there is that you know, hens will overeat if they're just given um, free choice feed all day long. And that, of course, will drive your feed bill up. Um, but it also put fat in the hens up to the point where they'll put excessive fat around their ovaries and it'll actually decrease their lay rate. So you have both a negative of a higher feed bill and a lower lay rate. 
Um, now, of course, the, the upside of doing the sort of free choice feed is it's very low labor. Um, whereas what we do is we've, we have what we call a feed sled that has enough linear f um, feed space for all the hens to eat at once. Because when you're rationing feed, if you don't have feed space for all the hens to eat at once, then the boss hens will eat too much feed and the hens on the bottom of the pecking order won't get enough feed. And so they have to all be able to eat at once. So we have this extensive oh, feed sled with essentially six inch PVC pipes um, ripped in half that provides you know three to four inches linear space per hen to eat at once. Um, and then we're spreading out, you know, it's about a quarter pound of feed per hen per day um, that we, we give in two different feedings. Um, so you can see that that's more labor and that we're, you know, we're, we're dumping out five gallon buckets of feed twice a day to the hens. Um, and we have to pull this feed sled forward and all this kind of stuff with the idea that we're saving significant money on the feed bill and that we're getting a better lay rate. So um, it, it's something that um, I've yet to really do tight math on to see if it really is paying off. But this year we're gonna run one flock uh, that's on a free choice uh, feed setup. We're gonna track our labor, our, our feed consumption and our um, lay rate, and then another flock side by side that's gonna be on the ration feed setup. And, and track everything likewise and kind of see, you know, if it really does, uh, one really does pay off uh, for the other. Um, so um, that, that's something that might be of interest. Um, and then otherwise, you know, pretty simple setup, automatic waters. Um, we've installed some buried irrigation on our farm and some of our leased farms that make, um, you know, hook up to waters for the hens, um, you know, easy and, and less problematic in the colder weather. Um, and uh, we've invested in um, uh, an egg washing machine that's been really helpful um, for processing our eggs uh, efficiently. Um, and um, yeah, the, yeah, and you know, build a, a cool bot uh, refrigeration room to, to handle all that. Those are that, that'd be that'd be kind of what I oh, yeah. a good picture of what it all looks like. Oh, very nice, and that'll be really interesting on your results of the free choice feed versus the ration feed. Yeah. Yeah, it will be good to see. I definitely want to know whether we're, you know, spending our time wisely or not. True. It's It sounds good on the ration feed, but then when you start figuring labor costs, how's it going to end up? That, yeah. I'll be looking forward to hear how that turns out. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing you added after layers was hogs. Why did you add hogs at that point? Um, I guess just because, I mean, I sort of knew going into building the farm that I wanted to provide the staple proteins. You know, I wanted to be a farm that could provide the basics for our customers. Oh, yes. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of always on the list. Um, and um yeah so it was just you know it was going to happen at some point and um and that was the the time to do it um so um but yeah like i mentioned um we ran into some issues where you know both our beef herd is growing and our poultry enterprises were growing and um we just made a decision to prioritize the beef and poultry over the pork in terms of who got to use the land and that just meant that um, 
that we decided that we're going to, you know, outsource the pork to two farmer friends. Um, and you know, I really enjoy raising pigs. Um, but we just had some, um, issues where we tried to raise pigs on land that wasn't great for them and we got heavy rain and it was a total mess and stressful. So we're just like, you know what, I'm trying to force this. This is not the right thing for this land. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I sort of learned my lesson there, but my hopes are that we'll be able to get um, a leased property that allows to get back into that in-house. Very nice. And I think that's an important detail you point out right there, that forcing an enterprise that's not quite appropriate for your land at that time. And, you know, when we look at what our land's available, we have to consider what livestock would benefit the most from it. And, and I think that was a probably a good re realization for you and you yeah. get some lease land that works for it you can bring it back in-house that's right pork is something i've talked about I th i've talked about it a little bit over the the life of the podcast that i keep wanting to try some hogs but i haven't done it yet yeah it's great i love working with them and then the other enterprise you have oh not the other we have then you added turkeys that's right or sometime in there, I don't know quite on the time frame. Sure. Are your turkeys raised in prairie uh, sch schooners? Yeah, and that's not always been that way either, but yeah, that's what, how we've been doing it, is we will take the turkeys out of the brooder at about five weeks, and they'll go into the schooners, and then they'll be in the schooners for, you know, till they're about maybe 10 weeks old, at which point then we start day-ranging them as well with electric poultry fencing. Um, so when they're about 10 weeks old, oh, I feel okay. pretty safe about them being big enough to not be taken by aerial predators. You know, the electric poultry fencing really takes care of the ground predators. Uh, but like I said, when they're, about, um, when they're about 10 weeks old, then I think they're pretty safe uh, from aerial predators. Um, and then we'll day range them just like we do the laying hens. So they'll have the schooner as their shelter for bad weather um, and has also hanging feeders and waters in there. Um, and then they'll be able to range over, you know, about a three-quarter acre paddock that we're moving at least once a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's been a good, I've been really happy with that, um, that that's worked out well for us. Have the turkeys been pretty easy to market? Yeah, we've, we've pretty much sold out every year. Um, it's often pretty stressful for me with the turkeys and sales because, you know, 80% of the turkeys need to sell at Thanksgiving. Um, and if they don't sell then, uh, especially the whole turkeys, then people just aren't interested in them and they're just going to stay in my freezer. So it's one of the things where I want to sell every whole turkey um, before Thanksgiving. Um, but also when it's such a high stake sale, you know, you don't want to mess up someone's Thanksgiving dinner and say, sell them one that you end up not having. Um, it can be pretty tricky because you both on one hand want to move every bird. On the other hand, you don't want to majorly disappoint a customer and you know not have the right size for them or not have the turkey for them. So um, I think we've made some changes for this upcoming year that I'm pretty um, happy about. Um, we're actually going to slaughter all of our turkeys um, by the end of September. Normally we're slaughtering our turkeys in October and November. Um, which made it difficult because we were selling birds that were in the field. And so you're trying to get an estimate of how many of these are going to be smalls and how many of these are going to be larges and that whole mess. 
Whereas this year, they're all going to be slaughtered by the end of September. We're going to know exactly what birds we have or what sizes. And when we open up sales and deposits October 1st, there won't be any guessing. We'll know exactly what our inventory is. Um, the other tricky thing about oh, turkeys yeah. is they take up so much freezer space. Um, and so what we're going to do is we rent cold storage um, about an hour from us at a cold storage warehouse. So we're going to slaughter all the turkeys in September, have a complete tally of all the birds we have and what sizes. And then we're going to palletize that and ship that all off to our cold storage and get that out of our freezers so it's not jamming up our freezers and making them impossible to work in. And then uh, sell all the birds and then bring them all back, say, mid-November or early mid-November from the cold storage and then move them quickly. Um, so I think this will be a lot less stress and a lot less work. Um, and uh, hope you know, here's hoping that it'll be an improvement. Yes, I hope that works out well for you. It sounds like it would because I do get that it's hard to sell a product still out in the pasture and not sure what you're going to get on the end product. Yeah. And then, in addition to turkeys and all your other animals, you have beef cattle. That's right. Yeah. So we used to do, um, you know, cow, calf, and finish, um, but we, you know, and that was really fun to 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 do the cow, calf. Um, but we just realized it didn't make the best sense for our context, um, just given the fact that we have a good customer base. We did better financially turning grass into beef as, a turn, as opposed to turning grass into babies um, oh, and yes. buying in our stockers from, you know, we've made some connections with um, some cow-calf producers that are oriented for grass-finished beef. Um, and so we've been had, I think, good success buying in these stockers from them and us focusing on finishing. Um, the other reason is that, you know, we have our home farm that's 82 acres and then we lease about another 500 acres on three or four other farms. So that just means that we are pretty regularly trailing our herd from farm to farm. And that's a, just a mess when it comes to cow-calf and you say, you know, there's a little tiny newborn calf trying to get on a trailer with a whole bunch of thousand pound mamas. Uh, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Or a calf that's, you know, sleeping in the, the tall grass and you can't find where he or she is and you're trying to get animals loaded up. So anyway, trying to trailer, you know, cow calf in the middle of a calving season is no fun. Um, <laughs> yes. And um, so anyway, for a number of reasons, we decided to get out of the cow calf and just uh, stick with finishing. Um, and that's, I think, been a good move for our context. Um, though I do miss, uh, I do miss having the calves. Oh, yes. So tell us a little bit more about your grass finishing. At what size do you purchase them, bring them onto the farm, and when are you finishing them out and processing them? Yeah, um, we're generally getting, you know, mostly 500, 800, 800 pound uh, wean stockers. Um, and then, you know, we're taking them, they're finishing around 1,100 pounds. Um, and it's taking us, you know, um, probably our average is something like 26, 28 months to get to finish. So, um, you know, I, I definitely would say that we have lots of room for improvement in terms of, um, you know, improving our pastures and, 
improving our management um, to get uh, a, a quicker uh, a quicker finish. But that's probably about where we are um, in average in that like 26 to 28. So when you say 24, 26 months, is that of age or are you having them that long? Of age. Of age. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, I thought, but I just wanted to clarify. On yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're bringing in um, steers that are more in the three to four frame size. Um, so, um, you know, we're oh, not, yes. you know, we're not trying to finish, you know, huge animals. Are you, or do you have specific breeds you're looking for? Um, you know, I've not been particular for a certain breed as much as I am interested in the breeder. Oh, so, yeah. um, that's, what's kind of been more influential on me in the decision is to find a breeder who is, um, who has the same goals I have in terms of frame score, in terms of hardiness, in terms of ability to do well on our kinds of grasses and our kinds of weather, um, without antibiotics, without wormers. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's been more important to me than a particular breed. Oh, yes. And tell us a little bit more on the finishing portion of them, because you are finishing at 24, 26 months of age. At that point, do you have another set coming in? So you have two grazing mobs, a smaller mob and a bigger mob, or do you have multiple ages throughout? I'm generally buying in uh, stockers in the spring, but I also will sometimes buy in stockers in the fall as well. Um, and yeah, I guess to date, we've generally had enough variation in their growth that um, that we have a spread of animals that are ready throughout the year. Oh, okay. uh, just based on you know summer performing better than others, and they're going to go in first. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, you mostly we've been buying in groups every spring is what we've been mostly doing. Do you manage them any difference different when they get closer to finishing than you do earlier on? I run them all as one group. I don't separate them out. Um, so, um, yeah. I mean, I guess there'll be periods of the year where I'm not going to be slaughtering. So, you know, we don't slaughter from January through April, May. Um, and so on that, in that period of year, I'm more willing to push the animals a little bit. Say if I, you know, um, have some ground, I want them to do, you know, where I'm going to roll out some hay bales and ask them to do some Hell landscaping yes. work. Um, I'll be more willing to do that then than, than I would, you know, before they're going into slaughter in, you know, October, November, December, um, where I'm going to be more sensitive to just focusing on their performance. Um, but like I said, you know, to be totally honest, um, I think that, um, that, you know, I have a lot to learn when it comes to um, sort of uh, cattle management. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it's. It's it's uh, a mixed bag there. As you think about your farm, 
and your journey thus far, what's been some of your biggest challenges? I think, you know, the bottlenecks have always usually been sales, land, labor, and capital. Um, and that's probably, you know, pretty, probably a lot of people can relate to those bottlenecks. Um, so I think something that's been, like I mentioned before, probably sales is something that it just comes more naturally to me. Um, and so that's not been so, I don't know, painful, I guess. Um, but I think one thing that I've come across more recently is as I've gone from just being a, a, a sole farmer who's got a little bit of help here and there to having a team is to really learn how to manage employees um, well. And, um, and that also requires a certain level of knowledge of the business um, that you maybe could fudge when it was not, when other people weren't involved, you know, um, but to really do justice uh, to your employees, um, you know, you can't be ignorant of, um, you know, what's going on in your business and how the business is doing and, you know, what you can afford to pay your employees or, you know, are there going to be cash flow problems sometime soon, you know, so just, um, it's a little bit more serious, you know, it's kind of like going from operating as a bachelor to operating as a family man, you know, in terms of your responsibilities to other people and the, the way in which you need to, um, kind of have your house in order. Um, so I think that's been a challenge for me. I think that's probably not one of my strengths is, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not, you know, the kind of person that, you know, um, just geeks out on organization and planning. I'm more of a sort of like jump in there and get going kind of person. And, and of course there's probably, you know, some virtues and, you know, getting going, but there's also some vices where, you know, you need to actually take time to plan and organize so you don't, um, waste time and, 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 and waste resources. And so, um, you know, I think those are the kind of things like you mentioned that the things that you procrastinate on for me, it would probably be more so, uh, planning and organization, um, which I'm trying to, you know, to work more on and, and, and do better with. Um, but that, so yeah, to your question of like, sort of what has been a challenge, I think that's been a, a growth challenge for oh, me yeah. is that planning and organization and employee management um, as the team has grown. Very good, Jesse. I've enjoyed talking about your journey and what you're doing on your farm. It's time for us to transition into our overgrazing section where we take a deep dive into something you're doing on, with your operation. And we discussed earlier, your internships are something a little bit unique in that not everyone does them. So we're going to take a deeper dive into your internships. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So we have three internship sessions. So there's a spring, a summer, and a fall. The spring we go from April to August. Summer is uh, August to December and then December to um, March um, or through March. Um, and so they're four month long sessions. Um, and basically the interns, um, live, uh, here on the farm and they do, um, everything that we do. So, you know, that entails 
all the animal operations, um, you know, moving animals to fresh pasture, feeding, watering, gathering eggs, processing poultry, taking animals to the slaughterhouse, picking up meat from the slaughterhouse, making deliveries to customers, putting together orders, helping customers in the farm store, uh, repairing infrastructure, um, all those kinds of things um, it, they would get ex exposure to. It's in my, you know, like I said before, I would have greatly benefited from having uh, been able to do that. You know, I had to learn to both farm and to run a business. And if I could have just had those farming skills down and felt confident in that and know that I, you know, I know how to raise a chicken or I know how to raise a, a beef steer. I just need to figure out how to build a customer base and market and et cetera. That would have been a lot less overwhelming. And, the, and I would have cheated the learning curve significantly and been much further along than I am now and had made less, um, uh, you know, financially uh, negative or emotionally negative, you know, experiences um, along the way. That wasn't open to me just with my stage of life and being married and having a baby. Um, but I think for those who can afford to do it, it's just a great way of cheating the learning curve and getting ahead. Um, and and it's, I think it's a great opportunity for those who on one hand maybe know they want to be a, a, a professional farmer and have that as their career and they're going to cheat that learning curve and they have the whole five-year plan and that's great. It's also a great way for someone who's interested in the field to have a low-risk way of checking it out because even if that person were to go and get 25 hens in their backyard, that's not what full-time farming is like. And so if you want to know what full-time full -time farming is like, it's better for you to take that deep dive in a full-on operation. Um, and then you'll actually get to see, hey, is this something that I would enjoy doing? Um, and you don't have to spend a dime to get there. You know, you don't have to buy any infrastructure. You don't have to, you know, buy any animals, et cetera. You can just get to, um, to see it from the inside of an operation, which I think is a really great thing to do um, for that person as well. Um, yeah. And so, you know, uh, I think it's, I think internships are a great, a great way to go. Um, and, and I think ours is very good. Um, uh, you know, we work hard to take care of our interns and not only do they get to have all the experiences they get to see in our business. Um, but I, um, am offer myself as a sort of lifelong consultant. So I have interns constantly texting me saying, Hey, what energizer should I buy? Or, you know, you know what slaughterhouse do you think I should, you know right. those kinds of things so um, they they get to have the benefit of that network the other thing I would say to those who are interested in internships in um, I think it's really important that you intern in a farm where you really respect their farming practices on one hand but then the other important thing is that it's actually a, a financially sustainable operation you know, there's there's lots of farms that are like a nonprofit, or maybe it's just sort of um, someone who's wealthy that is having fun, um, you know, or it's subsidized by the spouse in one way or another, something like that. But you know, if your goal as a farmer is to be a full-time professional farmer, then you want to know that you would be emulating something that's going to get you to that goal. So um, I think just if I were to advise someone who's thinking about an internship, I'd say. Go somewhere where you really think well of their farming practices and that is actually a viable business so that if you did what they did, you would also have a viable business. Because if you if you replicate a, a nonprofit, 
you know that you know that that's not going to be a viable um, for you know for-profit business um, so um, those are kind of like some of my big tips um, and um, yeah and you know uh, uh, I think I think internships are a great way to go and I think um, ours is a really good one to consider if we have a listener out there that's interested in your internship what do they do to gain more information and apply uh, on our website there's a, a page dedicated to our internship program so they can go there and read more about it and then the next step would be to email us uh, to get an application are you typically having all the spots filled or is it still in the uh, growth period? Yeah, um, depending on the time of year, we either want one to four interns. So um, we've either been f filled or close to filled generally oh, yeah. the last couple of years. Um, you know, for this, this spring um, session that's about to start here in April, um, we currently have one slot that's firmed up and then there's um, a number of applicants for the other three spots. So we'll see if that fills up by that time or not. Um, but it's, it's kind of right there at the edge, I'd say. Oh, yes. Very good. Jesse, thanks for sharing more about your internship yeah. program. It's time for us to move into our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Yeah, I, I would say this isn't something that I use um, regularly today, but it just was so important for my story that I, sort of, I feel like I need to sort of give the shout out to Pasture Poultry Profits, Joel Saladin's sort of seminal early work that was um, just a, a uh, you know, a a go-to reference for getting started for us um so that's not some that's not a book that i use regularly now but it was so critical in getting oh, started yes. that i think that's a a good one to throw out there very good our second question what tool could you not live without on your phone so um i probably have to go with my uh, multi-tool i never sort of like leave the house dressed without it um, and I constantly use it and I insist on our employees and interns keeping one on because just between repairing uh, water hoses and pipes and uh, and fencing stuff, you know, I just am constantly using that. Um, so I'd say that, but, you know, I just I also love the um, the Gallagher geared reels um, and that was the other sort of runner up there. Um, so I'd say uh, a, a good multi-tool. Um, uh, is one and, and the Gallagher gear reels would be my second. Oh, very good. Excellent choices. Our third question, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? I would say kind of back to one of our previous um, things we were talking about was about a mentor. Um, I think that it's critical to find um, a mentor or some mentors that present a compelling farm model, business model, um, family life that um, captures your imagination and is compelling for you um, and would be someone who you know you can lean on for questions and tips and when you're in you know uh, difficult spots. 
Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, a really excellent mentor is indispensable. Excellent advice. And lastly, where can others find out more about you and your operation? Um, we're, you know, we have a website and we're on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so I think our website is, uh, probably the best place to go to, um, wiffletreefarmva.com. Um, and you can Google Wiffletree Farm and, and find it easily. Um, but that's probably, uh, you know, a really great central place to get it. If you want to see some of the fun stuff we're posting on Facebook and Instagram, then, you know, that's, that's good to check out too. Wonderful, and we will post links to your site and your social media in our show notes. Jesse, we appreciate you coming on and sharing about what you're doing in Virginia, and it was wonderful to hear about it all. Yeah, Cal, thank you so much for talking with me and and, uh, having me on your show. I really appreciate what you're doing here. I enjoy listening to your podcast and hearing your other guests, and um, I hope that... uh, you know, some of the things we've talked about here will be helpful for other people too. I think they will be. Thank you, Jesse. I've enjoyed today's conversation with Jesse. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. Should we change our tagline? Jump over to the Grazing Grass community and let me know your thoughts. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post and like our comments, like our content. Are you a grass farmer? You want to share about your journey and your operation, what you're doing? Go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. And we'll be in touch. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, Click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.